0: When it comes to the autistic population, first of all, we have we have two levels of barriers so first, we have all this research out in the in the field and in, in various fields that don't include autistic voices and that's pushed into the literature, it's pushed into textbooks, and then that's what we learn in school okay. and then that's what we learn from our clinical supervisors and that's what we do in practice and we're not including. The population that we're working with and then the second layer on that as well is even if you look at those things one thing that was troubling to me i I believe the the percentage was like less than 25 percent of the studies from like the last two decades even mentioned race like even broke it down between anything past White and non-white, like it wasn't even broken down that way, and so one looping like multiple groups together and not even addressing the fact that clinical presentations look different in different populations and also on the culture, and so that was the most troublesome part. And then also just the amount of delays that we see when it comes to diagnosis, Um, Mm -hmm. and especially especially when you think about so many. Autistic people of color are diagnosed much later, either as children or even, like, as adults later on. Mm. You think about that, you spend, like, at least two decades of your life not knowing exactly what's going on, or people give you different words for what you're experiencing, um, or you come up with those internal messages on your own. So that's one part. Um, and also how that impacts parents as well and younger because they, they recognize that, you know, my children with my child benefit.
1: Hello, hello, everyone. Y hola, hola. Welcome to the Pediatric Speech Sister Show. I'm your sis, Melanie White-Evans. I'm a bilingual pediatric speech-language pathologist and cultural compatibility consultant here to learn with you and discuss more ways we can uplift culturally diverse communities in our professions in day-to-day lives. This podcast is for you if you're ready to address the disparities in the United States healthcare and academic systems and are looking for more ways you can be culturally competent in your careers. Tune in weekly as I introduce mind-shifting topics that will support service-based professionals and students alike on our cultural competency journeys. Let's get into today's episode. Hello. Hello, everyone. I am so excited for our guest today. We have Dr. Diamond O.T. This topic came to mind during Autism Awareness Month and Dr. Diamond and her colleague, I'm going to have to ask her, her colleague's name. They created this wonderful post about how we can just really better help the families of color, different disparities experienced by autism children and their families, especially in healthcare. I really just wanted to bring her on here live, pick her brain a little bit about how speech pathologists and OTs can collaborate. Let's bring her on.
0: Hi everyone. My name is Dr. Diamond Rashad or Diamond Evita is what I go by on Instagram and I am a pediatric occupational therapist. I have been working within pediatrics for six years now and something I always wanted to do, I always wanted to work with kids. I'm also a trained doula as well and very passionate about connecting maternal and perinatal health within pediatrics as well. I'm just looking at a lens of how do we have those things intersect, and also how does that impact um, people of color? How does that impact families that are have been systemically uh, marginalized or held to prejudices and discrimination in healthcare? So um, that is uh, what I look at, and I am in Georgia as well, so that's a little bit about me.
1: Okay, well, my first question is, what got you started in the field? What got you started with occupational therapy, specifically with pediatrics?
0: So, to get started in pediatrics, I shadowed a PT and an OT and just fell in love with OT when I was in high school. When I was shadowing, I remember working with different clients. Someone was a secure at the time. And I just thought to myself, wow, what a way to really support, um, a child during a time that might be they don't have a lot of positive a lot of positive relationships um, with adults at the time, especially just going through that transition. So that's what inspired me to just get started right into pediatrics and learn about OT.
1: So I know you talked a little bit about that, but just why, I do want to know why specifically occupational therapy, what led Mm -hmm. you to that instead of, you know, just other avenues like speech pathology or physical (laughs) therapy, um, just the other professions.
0: Okay. Yeah. So occupational therapy, I love that we look at the occupation that is the whole lens i love that we're holistic and creative but the biggest thing that i love is that you can use the occupation or the activity daily activity that's meaningful for the person you can use that as the treatment also as the outcome i love seeing like someone that wants to get back to golfing again or somebody that used to be a chef or wants to be able to cook for their grandkids, or even just wants to find a better way to support themselves as a mom with lactation, with baby hearing. So being able to adapt the routine, adapt different environments to help people get back to those everyday activities that when you look at it on a big picture, you might think, oh, it's not that big of a deal, but when you lose it, or you're not Mm -hmm. able to access it, you know, it means everything. It means everything for for people and for families when they're able to resume those things. So that that's what sparked for me was um, the best part of OT for me.
1: Well, thank you so much and first of all, just congratulations on how far you've gotten so far in the career. And thank you for everything that you are doing for the families that we're serving. I know that you've made an incredible impact in their lives. So I just want to thank you for that, truly. Um, So let's get into the nitty gritty of why we are meeting today. Um, So I did already go ahead and let everyone know, um, like I said earlier, just how speech pathologists and occupational therapists and even just all around the people that we work with, how we can be better for the people we serve, specifically for people of color. First, I want to just talk about speech pathologists and occupational therapists and just that collaboration all together. I've had A little bit of experience collaborating with occupational therapists so I've worked at two schools where I've gotten to collaborate with an OT one school it was amazing we did the summer speech together and the way that we collaborated is Pretty much we would just take turns thinking of lesson plans. We would do like a huge group classroom setting, we would have the TAs and the special education teachers helping out because of course it's a huge group. Then we would meet right afterwards and talk about what we noticed and what we saw. And that was amazing. Now then after that COVID happened, (laughs) so everything really just looked different. Um, I don't know how it's been for you or in Georgia, but I know at least for me and my particular district, it did kind of feel like overall people were less face-to-face, people were less interactive, less willing to interact with each other. So when I met the OT at my previous school, we really did not collaborate, sadly, we did not collaborate. She came in on her own time, I worked directly on the campus, so I came in um, at my time, but we did not collaborate well. So. I do want to ask you first, what has been your experience working with speech
0: pathologists, the good,
1: the bad, the ugly?
0: I would say um, overall, uh, collaborating with other SLPs and um, those that are in the field has been awesome. When I first started as an OT, I didn't, there were a lot of other OTs at the clinic that that I was at. Not one that was willing to mentor me. And so I learned so much just initially from other PTs, other SLPs, collaborating a lot on feeding. Um, I got into feeding very, very quickly as an OT when I first started and just learning about different swallowing techniques or learning about how we can collaborate on feeding, how I can learn more about, you know, the oral motor part or the swallowing part mm-hmm. and how the sensory and the texture part. So that part has always been awesome to do. Even I've been at a few different outpatient clinics and I also worked in early intervention for a little bit as well. And at all the different outpatient clinics, I would say it's been a pleasure to work with SLPs. I had one coworker at the time that we were always we all, always seem to get the same kids, and so we will always, you know, bounce ideas off each other or catch ideas, or she will pop in at the end of my session and say, oh, what are you doing different because I'm having a hard time with, you mm-hmm. know, engagement, and what can I do, um, you know, what what really inspires them, those things like that, and so giving ideas that way um, has been, yeah, it's been really good, overall positive. I okay. think, one, because I know we we're talking about the good, bad, and the ugly, right? Right, right. How could Um, we be better? (laughs) I would say the challenging part has been one where we don't understand each other's roles. um, And that can be when it comes to, to feeding, when it comes to even that overlap between speech and language and then social participation, like that overlap there. And so I've had times where we've had to like reset and talk about goals like okay well i'm working on this um and we don't necessarily need to work on um you know we'll be able to attend um sit at the table for five minutes like that's not really something that we should work on in general and i think that will be something more that i would work on as an ot if i was to do that so conversations like that and even just like some OTs do well with swallowing. I'm not certified in that in any way so whatsoever, but it doesn't mean that other OTs that are certified can do so. Mm-hmm. so. Again, just understanding each other's roles and our scope of practice and how they overlap in areas where they might not overlap as well. So those have been the two biggest things. That That's actually a really great
1: point. I think as professionals, it's, it's easy to get caught up in what we're doing, especially when we go into a collaborative setting, because we just know, we know, or we have an idea of what our role is. And then mm-hmm. you, as you're an occupational therapist or another professional, has your idea of what your role is. So when we're both working with the same kid and they overlap, that can cause a lot of issues um, in treatment and communication. Um, so thank you for sharing that. That's a whole other topic that we'll have to get through <laughs> a whole other day. But my next question for you, Dr. Diamond, is, What are some of the most interesting and troublesome findings that you've found when it's come to working with autistic children, their families, the minoritized population?
0: Yeah. So, so those that, um, that sometimes I hear the term, you know, those of the global majority, those that have been systemically marginalized in healthcare, when it comes to the autistic population, first of all, we have, we have two levels of barriers. So First, we have all this research out in the in the field, in, in various fields, that don't include autistic voices. And that's pushed into the literature, it's pushed into textbooks, and then that's what we learn in school, okay. and then that's what we learn from our clinical supervisors, and that's what we do in practice, and we're not including the population that we're working with. And okay. then the second layer on that as well is even if you look at those things, one thing that was troubling to me i I believe the the percentage was like less than 25 percent of the studies from like the last two decades um even mentioned race like even broke it down between anything past white and non-white like it wasn't even broken down that way and so one looping like multiple groups together and not even addressing the fact that clinical presentations look different in different populations and also on the culture and so that was the most troublesome part and then also just the amount of delays that we see when it comes to diagnosis um Mm -hmm. and especially especially when you think about so many autistic people of color are diagnosed much later either as children or even like as adults later on Mm. you think about that you spend like at least two decades of your life not knowing exactly what's going on or people give you different words for what you're experiencing um or you come up with those internal messages right. on your own so that's right. one part um and also how that impacts parents as well and younger because they they recognize that you know my children with my child would benefit from support but then the doctor says oh well they have eye contact so they're fine they're not autistic right and that's mm-hmm. and that's not how it works like not not right. every child presents as what you see in the media as this white autistic boy that likes dinosaurs and line things up not all kids do that so that was the most um troublesome not troublesome but yeah yeah Concerning.
1: Shocking. Yeah,
0: concerning. Yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah. Because one thing that you said that really stuck out to me, the families with children who have autism, they pretty much have to adopt whatever the doctor is trying to tell them. Um, And so just like what you said, they might create their own internalized messages. And culturally, that could be a really slippery slope to not to really just not getting the services that they need. Because I know a lot of cultures, especially, you know, like Caribbean cultures, for example, African cultures, for example, autism specifically, is not celebrated. um, And there's a lot of bad stigmas about it. And so as a parent, you see your child has autism, and then that's where a lot of the shame comes in. And then you go out into your community, and then there's a lot of shame there. So the internalized messages might deter you from actually getting the help that you need. Um yeah, but, so thank you for bringing up those points because I think it's very important to talk about because as professionals too, we're just very guilty of really just, again, just getting in our heads and in our day-to-day lives of the work rather than taking ourselves out of it and looking at the actual client and the family as an individual and helping their individual needs. Yeah, um, Speech Orlando said so much shame. Yeah, yeah they do. Yeah. Expect- lot of shame have you seen that before like have you worked with families and they've expressed
0: that to you
1: or just what's your oh, yeah. experience been like working with families of color
0: yes i would say a hundred percent especially working with um those in the black population like working with black families right. like we talk about it all the time and then just mm-hmm. because we have we have on some level like that mutual understanding of like understanding what what it's like to interact with extended family. Um, sometimes immediate family tends to um, be able to process things a little bit easier, but then you have those layers upon layers on of basically just um, generational trauma. Yeah, um, because a lot of a lot of families think, okay, this is just this is just one more thing. They're already black right already hard enough being black in america and now you have to add on this other layer um and really uh, how how we look at ableism even internalized ableism and then what we see in america with racism those two go hand in hand like it really upholds white able bodies and you see that in special education as well so um yeah we talk about it all the time and just about like even when we talk about ot strategies and things that we can try um it's hard to implement those things if it's only implemented by one person or just by the team if the whole community is not behind it like oh they don't need those headphones or Mm -hmm. you know they don't have to they can just you know act act normal right Um, just, you know. Uh, he just
1: needs a whooping. He just needs a whooping. He
0: just needs a whooping. He oh, just needs yeah. to a parent better. And that's not, that's not the case. So right. a lot of us, you know, processing together and trying to find support for, for parents too, so they can be the best advocate for their child. Could you maybe just give us like
1: one example of what that what that counseling would look like because I know, I know with speech pathology counseling is within our scope of practice so we are doing a lot of that managing of how they feel and of the internal feelings but of course unfortunately you have to build trust to get their perspective um so what has been your perspective on that or your experience
0: if I was talking to a parent about a, a child that tends to be a sensory seeker and they really they really crave movement. They're always on the go or they tend to like like input from like pushing against the wall or you know like using toys a little bit too rough and things like that and so a parent might say oh well, I'm concerned about how teachers will see this kid um in school are they going to are they going to think about this kid as you know just seeking out input? Or are they going to think that they're being bad? Are they going to try to discipline him? or are, are they going to be punished for that? Hearing what's going underneath the conversation and also you know asking further questions like you know are you concerned because this kid will be will be black within the school system and then a parent might talk about their own school experiences with previous kids or even with themselves and how maybe they weren't heard when they mm-hmm. were like you know um, I have a few parents that are neurodivergent themselves um and so um they'll talk about their own experiences with just you know the teacher always saying they talk too loud or always getting reprimanded that way Mm-hmm. Um, so just reflecting back and asking questions not assuming because that might not have been the case but right um, yeah reflecting back asking those questions and also thinking about um prior conversations and you know you mm-hmm. told me this last week and does this relate to what you're talking about today a lot of listening really and just realizing yeah. that, that it's okay to be the therapist for both I think sometimes we feel weird about that because it's kind of informally trained for us and parents feel like okay well they're here for the kid not for me but really having like a family-centered care um, yeah. thinking about how can i support the whole family and that includes the parent first a lot of mm-hmm. times it's not just about the kid and
1: i like how you i just i like everything about what you said um because one codes Switch slp said trust is so big for the cultural diverse families yes Um, And the other component is the listening component. So when the parent is saying to us, oh, I'm kind of afraid that my son will be put down or will be put in ISI detention, suspended, whatever, because they're having these issues. um, That speaks to a lot. That speaks to a whole lot of really insecurities and mistrust in the education system. So. I think as professionals, and and I just feel like I also do have to say this, is to stay within your scope of practice. Please do not, if you are not a licensed therapist, a licensed psychologist, please do not go outside of that, but at the same time and, you know, just employ the listening skills that we've learned and that we've been trained Mm -hmm. on. So overall, when we're serving those families of color, it is very important to just understand what they're trying to tell us. I think that a lot of maybe white speech pathologists or even speech pathologists from other cultures who are serving black children and their families really feel disconnected, of course, because it's not their culture. So it makes sense. But I would just say, and I'm going to pass the question on to you, but I would say that research is huge, research, 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 especially when it comes to the disparities so just kind of like bouncing off of your your example talking to the mom and she's saying how she's worried that her kid will be in trouble sent out for talking too loudly even um part of the research i've done is i know that talking loud it's literally called loud talking that's a characteristic of black communication that's an actual legitimate characteristic of black communication and sadly when we're brought into general education settings it's seen as bad or disruptive, um, you know, so, so I did also just want to ask you what you've noticed with the loud talking piece, but also just, just mainly overall, It's like staying in our scope of practice, and just what professionals can do when we are listening, or if we feel disconnected with the families.
0: One thing that you mentioned research, um, you yeah, start with listening to different voices. So just connecting with um, autistic practitioners, those that are SLPs, Mm -hmm. those that are OTs, like me, um, those that are parents, we have autistic parents, we have autistic adults, and from all kinds of different communities, those that use an AAC device, those that don't. So starting there um, with your research and really listening to those stories, because a lot of times those stories aren't heard in, in the media, they're not heard in articles, they have to come right now at least for now from from word of mouth so starting there and if and if you don't feel connected just listening and also and also understanding even if you don't connect to the culture understand that many cultures and many families experience gaslighting from medical professionals yeah. there's so much power in just listening and not brushing people off and not going oh i'm sure they'll be fine or I wouldn't worry about that. Just really listening to the concerns and digging deeper because so many families, it takes for some families, six to eight providers to get a di- diagnosis, or they have to go to a doctor three to four times to get a referral for speech and then go back again, do the same thing for OT. And right. so you think about that. That doesn't happen within days. That happens within like you know, weeks to months and then they finally get to where they need to be and they get to ask those questions and then the professional says, oh, they'll be fine. Right. And so then it's just, they just feel that trigger all over again. Even if you don't feel immediately connected, there's so much power in just listening and making sure that they feel heard. And if you can provide a resource, if you know of one, um, providing a direct resource, not a general one. So again, you are sharing that mental load. You're not just saying, oh, well, check out maybe look into some parent support groups mm-hmm. what parent support groups like are there any in the area do you know of one do you recommend one sharing sure, that mental load with parents if you can and it's okay to mm-hmm. not have resources that first right. time it's okay to like do research and come back like yeah listening providing resources to be a part of their community thank you and
1: i want everyone who's listening to this um and who might be thinking oh my gosh i was actually guilty of that i'm just saying oh they'll be fine or whatever that is That's okay because now you know we know better, so we do better. Um, And so, also, it's okay if it's necessary. If you feel like you gotta go back on training for listening, how to listen, how to counsel patients and families, do that. Do that. It's continuing education. Sometimes we need to um, brush up on our skills. Pam said, amp up your resources. Yes, amp Mm -hmm. up your resources so we can better serve them. Um, So Dr. Diamond, I don't want to keep you all night. I know on the East Coast it's getting a little late. So I'm just going to ask you one more question. What are some actionable and specific ways that SLPs, OTs, and other professionals can work together to ensure positive treatment outcomes? Especially for children of color.
0: So I'll say, one, look up the pathway for um an autistic diagnosis and even Mm. look at within your area what the wait lists are like in your area like how long does it take who um who's getting a lot of the referrals um and how long is it taking them for for them um i've had some families say they are waiting for an appointment in december some families are waiting for an appointment in may
1: Mm -hmm.
0: it's june and they are not going to be tested until May. Mm-hmm. So thinking about those things and then also looking at what what you have within your own practice. What materials do you have? That's a great place to start, um, either with evaluation tools or even with the things that you use in practice. Um, mm-hmm. Do they reflect um, what children see? Does it give them a mirror? Um, when 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 they're working with you or Mm -hmm. is is there any representation available within your resources that make kids and families feel more comfortable even like for example if i'm evaluating a kid and we're working on you know hair brushing i have a variety of hair brushes because i know Mm -hmm. like i'm not about to use no like fine tube comb one right (laughs) it'll break really clear Yeah, no, absolutely not. So small things like that, um, looking at what you have. And then also not being afraid to branch outside of your practice. There's so much that we can do outside of our therapy walls. And when we take that next step, that makes our practice even more powerful because Mm -hmm. these families exist out of the therapy walls. We shouldn't just stay in this one bubble and then not expect that outside forces from you know what's going on in the world or different laws or different advocacy rights that are going on, they're not going to impact our families about those things as well. And what certain communities are you know fighting for at the time and how that impacts our kids, our families, our clients as well. So those are three different ways you can at least really start and, and look at how you can transform your practice
1: thank you so much for these tips and thank you so much just for meeting with me today. I'm so glad that we finally got to meet and talk about this topic. Where can people find you if they want to ask you more questions?
0: Yeah. So you can find me at a dime of OT on Instagram. And also I have a blog, a dime in also a link in my bio if you want to access that and I'm available for coaching calls or even just I'll call them like pick my brain sessions that so we can just connect and mm. collaborate and um if you need someone else in your corner that you know has a little bit more resources or has been there to help with child led play or just even just having more inclusive methods, I'm your girl. So that's me. Thank you so much.
1: This has been an excellent talk. I hope to have you on here again sometime soon. <laughs> yes, that sounds great. All right, Dr. Diamond. Well, I'm going to let you go. Thank you, everyone who came on. Um, Again, if you have any questions, you know where to find Dr. Diamond. And I am Pediatric Speech Sister if you have any questions. So thank you again, Dr. Diamond. I hope you enjoy the rest of your evening.
0: Thank you. You too.
1: (laughs) Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye, Bye, everyone. Well, family, that's the episode. What did you think? Wherever you're listening, I'd appreciate if you left a review. Your feedback means a lot to me and helps me find more ways to help you on your journeys. If you're looking for more ways to expand your cultural compatibility in your clinical practices, follow me on Instagram at Pediatric Speech Sister and check out my newsletter for more show updates. I'll include all these links in the show notes. Until then, I'll see you next week.